Imagine you've just stepped into a beautiful Catholic church with 65-foot-tall ceilings, an interior dome, an altar featuring seven different colors of rich marble. There are over 40 massive stained glass windows designed by artists in Chartres, France, and colorful beams of light stream in, making up for the fact that there's very little artificial light in the building. And on every inch of available space, on the walls and ceilings, there are frescoes. Beautiful, detailed frescoes, featuring colors that are unexpected and much more vibrant than most of what you'll see in old-world European churches. This building has been called the Sistine Chapel of New England, and it's one of the largest collections of frescoes in the United States. And actually, when it comes to the Sistine Chapel, you could fit two of them inside of the church I'm talking about. If I told you that this incredible artistic treasure is located in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, would you be surprised? The church itself, though it absolutely glows with beauty on the inside, it's actually completely unassuming on the outside. You could drive by it every day and never know it was there. In fact, I basically did just that. And 20 or so years ago, it was almost lost completely. But the artwork, it's only the beginning. Because after the paintings draw you in, what you find are stories. And some of them are so incredible, they feel right out of a movie. There are working class parishioners who literally save nickels and dimes to build the church. There's a hunchback painter with an inspired vision, a world war and a misunderstanding that sends the painter to an internment camp. And there's an elaborate plan to paint a beautiful girl into the church frescoes, despite her wishes. It's these stories, the ones that make you say, wow, I've never heard something like that before, that make this place come to life. I'm Sarah, and you're listening to Weird Island. Each week, I'll be telling you about the strangest stories I can dig up from my tiny little state of Rhode Island. And this week, as part two of my Woonsocket Day Trip series, I'm going to be telling you about the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center and the real-life people behind its incredible frescoes. Before I get to the beginning of the story, I first have to tell you the end, because today, St. Anne is no longer a church. It's the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center, and that's because in 2000, with membership declining and maintenance costs rising, the Diocese of Providence announced it would close the church. And it might have been demolished had it not been for the efforts of a small group of determined individuals who knew they had to save it. These people, they became the guardians of this place and the people on the walls and their stories. And I couldn't tell these stories without their help. So the volunteer executive director of the Arts and Cultural Center helped me not only tell the stories of the church, but pronounce the many French names involved in them, including his own. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it in the French way, which is Dominique Douaron, or you can do it in the English way, Dominique Douaron. 
Dominic, he's been here involved in the church for quite a while. Actually, um, I was born and raised here. This was my parish growing up. So if you listened to last week's episode, I told you that we could start this story at the train station. So let's go back there, because it'll help explain why there are so many French names in this story. In the early 1800s, as the Industrial Revolution developed in nearby Pawtucket, Woonsocket was identified as another prime location for textile mills. The first mill was built in 1831, and it wasn't long before the textile industry expanded, so much so that there weren't enough people to work in the mills. One of the first groups of people to work in the mills were Irish immigrants, many of whom had come to build the Blackstone Canal. But by the mid-1800s, as steam power enabled mills to be made bigger, and it powered the railroads, mill agents traveled north to Quebec to recruit French Canadians to leave their farms and take up work in the U.S. Some saw this as a temporary opportunity to earn money, and the inexpensive railroads allowed them to go back and forth between the U.S. and Canada relatively frequently. But many moved permanently to New England, and to Woonsocket specifically, which became one of the most French cities in America. A 1913 survey by the American Association of Foreign Language Newspapers estimated Woonsocket had the sixth largest population of French or French-Canadian citizens in the country. The French-Canadian immigrants who moved to Woonsocket would frequently travel home to visit with family, and here in the city they formed tight-knit communities to preserve their culture, language, and faith. And this is how the church was started. The St. Anne Parish was a French-Canadian Roman Catholic parish founded in 1890, and it wasn't in the building that exists now. The original church complex included a gymnasium and theater, intended to encourage young people to stay within the community. And people did stay within the community. As the church grew, it needed to expand into a larger space. So the parishioners, many of them mill workers making as little as $7 a week, pinched pennies to raise the $150,000 it would take to build the new church. Uh, When people walk in, the first thing they think is, wow, this must have been an incredibly wealthy parish. Um, Usually you see artwork like this, it's in, you know, big mansions. Um, it's in wealthier parts of, of, of cities or, or states. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, this, this parish was a uh, French-Canadian immigrant parish. Uh, these were mostly mill workers. And everything from the construction of the building to the eventual installation of the various types of art in here uh, was nickel and dimed. And when we say nickel and dimed, we really do mean uh, nickel and dime. They um, they pulled their resources together from everything from not only extra collections um, on the weekends at the masses to holding your your your, your church, typical church fundraisers to uh, going door to door, literally collecting uh, nickels and dimes um, to do everything that uh, was done here. Um, so it really truly was a, a community effort to build for themselves really a magnificent structure. In 1914, construction began on the new building. But just before construction wrapped up, the money, it ran out. 
The building was there, but the big windows intended to let in light were just plain old windows, no beautiful stained glass. And the walls were plain gray, unfinished stucco. But in 1918, the church opened its doors anyways, unfinished walls and all. By the 1920s, a little more money had been raised, enough to replace those plain glass windows with 40 beautifully detailed stained glass windows created by French artists. In the 1930s, the church really flourished. It was the hub of the community, with over 6,000 members. The building could fit roughly 1,500 people inside, but even so, every Sunday, seven masses were said to accommodate the huge population. And if you wanted to attend midnight mass on Christmas, you had to buy a lottery ticket and hope your number was pulled. By 1940, the thriving church was in a position to do a little bit more decorating. So Reverend Ernest Morin led a drive to raise another $25,000 to add more color to the gray walls. And when the money had been raised, he went out in search of an artist. What was happening was that the pastor at the time uh, was visiting different churches or buildings that were being decorated. So he actually, he pretty much went almost all over uh, New England uh, looking at different artists. But then he walked into St. Matthew's Church in Central Falls, where a tiny, devout hunchback named Guido Nincari painted away. And there was something about Nincari's art that just felt right. He invited Nincari to St. Anne's to see if he'd be interested in doing some sort of artwork on the walls. When Nincari walked into the church, the first thing he noticed was that the walls and ceilings hadn't been plastered. Suddenly, Ninkeri knew this could be more than just another commission. This could be his Sistine Chapel. Because the unfinished, unplastered walls provided a rare opportunity to do something called a buon fresco, a style of painting in which paint is applied to wet plaster, just like Michelangelo did. And that's very, very important, because to do this, the true fresco, fresco style of painting, um, it's painting on a wet plaster, and if the walls are already plastered, you can't put plaster over plaster. It, it's not going to stick. The walls and ceilings were finished just in a gray stucco cement. Now, why was it finished like that? Why, you know, why not plaster? Because normally, the last thing you do to a building is you plaster. You put that final smooth coat on there to paint. Well, the answer was simple. When they were constructing the building, they simply ran out of money. And so they left the walls and ceilings as just stucco cement. And then 25 years later, in comes this artist who recognizes, looks at the walls and says, oh my gosh, here is an extraordinarily rare opportunity for me. So Ninkeri, he excitedly pitches the idea to the pastor, but the pastor hesitates. He talks about the fresco style to the pastor, saying, oh, it'd be just like the Sistine Chapel in Rome. You know, fresco doesn't fade like a, a oil painting does. It doesn't peel like an oil painting. It's much more durable and goes on and on and on. And of course, the pastor being the business administrator that he has to be, says to Ninkiri, well, how much extra is this fresco thing going to cost? And Ninkiri said to him, nothing. Uh, because no matter what he does, if he's going to paint directly on the wall, even if it's oil, or if he's going to paste a mural to the wall, 
he has to smooth out that surface. He has to plaster it anyways. So if he's going to plaster, why not do this whole fresco thing? And so um, I guess the pastor had no other arguments or questions about it. And he said, all right, let's do it. And this building became uh, Ninkiri's, you know, Sistine Chapel. Uh, this was his his biggest masterpiece, his biggest uh, fresco work that uh, he ever created. The story doesn't end there, though. In a way, it's really just the beginning. Because while Ninkiri was originally contracted to finish the project in two years, it ultimately took eight. And there were a number of reasons for that. Some of them were kind of what you would expect. He couldn't paint in the summer and the winter because the extreme New England temperatures um, had negative effects on the drying time of the plaster. So that time was used for planning. Uh, he was also you know, working on other projects at the same time. Uh, he would make frequent trips back up to Canada to uh, where his stained glass studio was, which was his primary trade. But there were a few things that delayed the project that I can't imagine anyone expected. Um, but then World War II broke out. Um, because it's, uh, the paint, the project started a year or two before World War II, before the U.S. entered it. And then um, that became difficult to get supplies. So that delayed the project. And then on one of his trips back into Canada, he was arrested. Um, a few years prior, uh, there was an Italian church up in Canada that hired him to do some, some frescoes. And they insisted that he paint a portrait of Mussolini. Uh, it was something he didn't want to do. He didn't. Um, he wasn't very political, but he also, but he definitely didn't, you know, agree with the politics of Mussolini at the time. And it was one of those situations where they forced his hand. They said, "Well, you either do the portrait, or we rip up your contract." So reluctantly, he did the portrait of Mussolini. And because of that portrait, on one of his trips back to Canada, uh, he was arrested and he was imprisoned um, in a hard labor concentration camp. So that delayed the project. So there were a number of factors that went into delaying um, this whole project here at the center. But when the weather conditions were right, and when he wasn't arrested, and when supplies were able to be obtained, Ninkeri was hard at work, filling every inch of the walls and ceilings with frescoes. They built special scaffolding for him, because unlike Michelangelo, who would lay flat while painting the ceilings, Ninkeri, because he was a hunchback, had to sit on a stool or a bucket and look up to paint. And when it came to the design of the paintings, Ninkeri asked the parishioners of St. Anne to model for him. The nun who played the church organ modeled as St. Cecilia, the patron saint of music. Ninkeri's wife, Julia, became St. Anne. He asked one of the nuns who taught seventh grade to send him the two most mischievous boys, and he paid them each 50 cents and a peanut butter sandwich to model as the devils in the last judgment scene. He also portrayed the mother superior, who he frequently butted heads with, as a fallen angel. But the really amazing thing is that because we're really only a generation or two removed from many of these people who modeled for the frescoes, in some cases, we know more than just a quippy one-liner about each person. We know who they really were and what they were like. And many of the people who are still connected to the church, or come to the church, they have this direct connection to the artwork. 
including a woman I met named Janine. Janine Ogier, her her maiden name is Vakeman. She's um, on our board of directors, and her grandfather is on the ceiling. Uh, he port- he's portrayed as Saint Joachim, Mary's father. So if you look at you know biblical history, Saint Anne is Mary's mother, and um, Saint Anne's husband was Joachim, and her grandfather uh, was portrayed as Saint Joachim, and he was. A Belgian immigrant. Um, he was actually descended uh, from a line of dukes, so he, technically he was actually of Belgian royalty. Uh, but he came to the United States. He immigrated here to Woonsocket, um, and uh, was a, he was also a, his trade was a printer, but he was also a playwright. And um, back in the day, Saint Anne's had part of the property was the structure called the uh, they called the gymnasium. And within this gymnasium, among other things, was a 750-seat vaudeville theater. And so he directed and wrote plays uh, for that theater. And he was, you know, here in the 40s, uh, he was already at an older age. And uh, he was one of the people that uh, the artist Guido Ninkiri chose to uh, portray on on the ceiling. And so he was chosen as St. Joachim. And to me, the amazing thing is that Guido Nincari didn't discriminate. He painted Belgian royalty on the walls, and he painted the janitor. There's a painting of Jonah and the whale, and uh, the guy that's portrayed as Jonah, his name uh, is Alphonse Lavalli, and he actually worked for the church. He was uh, what they call in French, le bidou, um, sometimes the the term sexton will be used uh, most well-known term would be the janitor and um, what people marvel at is you know Jonah and the whale uh, he has this incredible sculpted body and that was not only his face but that was his body as well um, again harking back to that St. Anne's gymnasium there was uh, in that gymnasium there were workout rooms and so he worked out and he um, these are back in the days when the uh, furnace was uh was fired by coal and so he'd be one of the people down in 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 the boiler room shoveling and having to move lots and lots of coal to keep the furnaces going in the winter time and so he uh, was chosen to portray uh, Jonah in Jonah and the Whale. There are in total thought to be 475 people painted within the church. That's over 400 lifetimes worth of stories to explore. Unfortunately, not every story is remembered, but there's one more incredible one that I wanted to share with you. There was one member of the church who really stood out to Ninkeri, this beautiful young girl named Marguerite Forget, and Ninkeri was dying to paint her as the angels. She had this look. Uh, there was a certain look to her that he just liked. Maybe he had a little infatuation with her you never know um maybe she was a a, a, to became sort of a type of a muse for a little while um who knows you know the problem was she was incredibly modest and she and her parents didn't feel it was proper to model so she refused ninkari's request but he was determined so he formed a friendship with her family and he would stop by in the evenings to talk in french and Marguerite would be around. Maybe she'd offer him something to drink, and at the end of the evening, he would race home. The family thought it was a little strange, but he was a busy man after all, 
and he sat all day, so maybe he was racing home to exercise, they thought. But one day, Ninkeri approached Marguerite in the church. What do you think, he asked, and pointed up to 40 portraits of angels, representing virtues like faith, hope, and charity. And every angel had her face. Ninkeri had spent those evenings with her family, memorizing every detail, and had raced home to sketch her face until he got it right. It's just, it's one of those things where uh, he was determined to do her portrait. Um, and he, he did what he needed to do to get her portrait. And um, here she is now, she's in here at least, as far as we know, 40 times in the building, memorialized, um, and she'll be here forever. By all accounts, Marguerite was a beautiful woman her whole life, and she remained a part of the community. Even a few years after the church closed, she lived in her childhood apartment where she grew up behind the church on Golden Avenue uh, before going into uh, a nursing home. And she, a wonderful, wonderful person. I knew her very well. Uh, She was also a really great singer. She, She was a member of the choir. She so little lot. She had this beautiful, beautiful angelic voice, um, and uh, yeah, she 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 passed away quite a while ago. I want to say it's probably close to fifteen years ago, if it take a couple of years. Um, uh, but um, yeah, she she was a, another great person. There were so many stories that were just incredible, like this one. And before I let Dominic go, I asked if he would tell me the one thing he wishes people knew about St. Anne's. Yeah, what I tr- one of the biggest things I try to impress upon people is that, first of all, there are two paintings in here, because it was done during World War II, uh, there are two paintings dedicated to the war, dedicated to World War II, uh, which is something else that's super highly unusual to have something like that done inside of a church and here they are two of them here we oftentimes talk about the greatest generation and the church was painted during world war ii so a lot of the faces on the walls on the ceilings were these are all people who were part of that greatest generation they were part of the war effort some of them literally went off to war some of them never returned many of them worked in the factories that that sewed the the blankets made the boots um, that went over to the soldiers in uh, overseas and the rest of them were here back home doing what they could to support the war effort and what we have here um, these aren't again we mentioned it before these are not wealthy people but these are regular people who lived through an incredibly difficult time. And what we have here, although done in a religious medium, is a living scrapbook. And the only difference with this scrapbook is that we can't fold it up into a neat little book and tuck it into the back of a closet. Um, These greatest generation are permanently on display and that's a part of what we're trying to save here um, is a moment of time um, because you can't separate religion from culture it's impossible so the two 
came together here in this extraordinary work of art. And if we can keep the building going, we want to make sure we pass this building on to the next generation so that at least this small group of people will never be forgotten. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's what we do here. That story, it gave me chills. I couldn't have told any of these stories without the help of Dominic and Joe, who was my tour guide, and all of the other incredible volunteers who keep these stories alive. I mentioned it at the beginning, but these volunteers literally saved the church. If it weren't for them, it wouldn't be here today. While the St. Anne Art and Cultural Center is only open for tours Sunday from 1 to 4, Dominic and Joe and Wally, who's the chairman of the board of directors, and many others are there every single day maintaining the building and running events. If you only visit one place I've mentioned so far, make it this one. And when you do, thank the volunteers for the work they're doing and ask Joe or Dominic to tell you what it takes to do something as simple as change a light bulb. Because it sounds like such an easy task, but it will blow your mind what this team does to make it so the stories and the artwork are not forgotten. Thank you so much for listening. As always, all episodes are researched and written by me, Sarah Corbin, and a huge thank you to Dominic Duaron for joining me on today's episode and to all the other people who made this episode possible. If you're from Woonsocket or know someone who was, and you know a story of someone who's up on the walls in St. Anne's. I would love to hear that story. You can email me or send me a recorded voice memo at weirdrhodeisland at gmail.com. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and family, or you can leave a rating or review. See you next week as we dig up more stories about all things weird and wonderful in the little state of Rhode Island. Until next time.